Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 39. Jesus is speaking and he says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my namesake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough that the, for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. <coughs> Excuse me. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven." Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake We'll find it. Now, this is a big section of scripture. And for those of you that have been in a part of our studies over the years, you're sitting there going, there's absolutely no way Jim's going to cover all these verses tonight. And the answer is, yes, I will. And no, I won't. All right, let me explain what, what we're going to be doing. We will be coming back when we get back in September. We'll be pulling some more things out of here. There's a lot in this section to unpack. But I put this whole section together for a reason. I've carried all these verses because there's, there's a theme in these verses that I want to pull out. And so we're going to unpack some of these things tonight. But, but before we do, did any of you notice the amount of no fun stuff all through these verses? <laughs> Let me just point out a few. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. It's one thing to go out in the midst of wolves. It's another thing to go out in the midst of wolves as a sheep, okay? You will be flogged. Brother will deliver you over to death. Father will have their children put to death. You'll be hated by all nations. You will have to flee from town to town. You will be maligned. Sounds like a fun assignment, doesn't it? Now, let me say something to you, though, that will help you. A careful study of this, and that's what we're going to do tonight, will help a little bit in this. Because as I'm going to show you, some of this applies to us, some of it does not. Some of it applies to the church, some doesn't apply to the church. Some things do apply to people in the church, some things do not apply to others in the church. Some things only apply to Israel, 
and not to the church. And so we're going to be breaking this down. So as I read all this stuff, some of it you're going to see is for us. Some of it's not. Some of it's for Israel. Some of it's the church and so on. We'll, we'll deal with that. But also, without just pointing out all the no fun stuff that's in this section, you might have missed the encouragement that's here as well. Listen to just some of the encouraging things that came out of this passage. You will bear witness for me. What you are to say will be given to you. The spirit of your father will speak through you. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, again, I'm going to really deal with that in a little bit in detail and because there's something you need to understand about that phrase. But it's it's encouragement that there'll be people who are saved. The son of man is coming. Have no fear of those who persecute you. Why? Because you're of great value in the eyes of God. And then I will acknowledge you before my father in heaven. So there's a lot of negative stuff. And we go, look at all that bad stuff. We miss out on the encouragement that's here in this passage as well. But as we break down these verses tonight, it'll help us to realize that even though there's an underlying truth in all of this, not all of it will specifically apply to each of us. But we must be ready for some of it will. And that's what we're going to do. There's an underlying truth through this whole section. That's why I took a longer section than I normally do. And that underlying truth is this. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you will face persecution. Just get that in your head. We all know John chapter 16, verse 33. You don't have to turn there where Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. But go to John chapter 15. In John chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. Now, this is Jesus is speaking at the in the last days of his life. Actually, I believe it's that last night. They've just taken the Lord's Supper together and had the Passover meal. and He's about to be arrested. In John chapter 15, look at verse six, uh, verse 18. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. By the way, when did he say that? Matthew chapter 10, where we just were. Quick, go back and get your bookmark in John 15. Go back to Matthew 10. And look at what he says in verse uh, 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. So here at the end of his time, at the end of the three years, on that last night before he's arrested, he says, remember what I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they don't know him who sent me. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I can promise you, this is probably not one of the scriptures you have written down on a three by five card and on your mirror to encourage you in the morning. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, look at verse 12. It says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Some? All. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So in this passage that Jesus is talking to his disciples as he sends them out two by two. Remember when we were together last week, we saw how he sent them out two by two. And he designated some to be apostles and he gave them authority over evil spirits and be able to heal and 
cast out demons and then they were to go preach the message of the kingdom. And he told them not to go to the Gentiles, go to the lost sheep of Israel. As he sends them out, he gives them this instruction. And he says to them, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves and you're going to experience some hardship in this. He never hid the fact that following him would be easy. That's why for those of us who have followed him, we know that he has said in order to follow him, we need to what? Deny ourselves daily and take up his cross and follow him. And that means be willing to follow him even to the death. Unfortunately, that goes against a lot of preaching today in churches, doesn't it? A lot of churches are full of preaching that talks about how if you follow Jesus, you're going to have such a great and awesome and wonderful life and you're going to be healthy and you'll never be sick and you'll have money. And that's not what the Bible teaches. Now, God does care and he does meet our needs and he even is generous and blesses us many times. But at the same time, that mindset of understanding that following Christ in this world. Well, how did Paul put it? I think at the end of his life, he said, I've finished the race. I've fought the fight. Think about that. I fought the fight. And anybody else felt that way sometimes? Ever you ever get thinking about heaven and you think, man, I can't wait to, to be done the battle? Because there's a spiritual warfare going on on a daily basis. One day it's going to be wonderful when we don't have to do that. So please keep in mind, we will all face persecution of some level because of our faith in Christ. But he goes on in here and as he's talking to his disciples, he talks about how they're going to be flogged in the synagogues and handed over to kings and brother's going to hand over brother to death and a father is child and... Well, let me ask you this question. Does the Bible teach that everybody will be killed for their faith? Well, of course not. That's not what the Bible teaches. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to John chapter 21. So it's obvious as Jesus is talking to his disciples as he sends them out. That even though there's an underlying truth that all are going to experience tribulation, some of this stuff can't apply to everybody. There must be a distinction of who he's talking to and who he's not talking to as he gets into some of these things. And we're going to get into that tonight. Now, as you're turning to John 21 and we're going to start reading in verse 18, let me kind of set the stage. As you know, before Jesus was crucified, uh, Peter says that he doesn't know about the rest of these bums, but he loves Jesus the most. And Jesus actually, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to sorry, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny you know me three times. Well, and then Peter says, actually, no, I'm willing to die for you. As you know, Jesus is right and Peter's wrong. And he denies him. And actually, in one of the episodes that he denies him, he's warming himself, the scripture says, by a fire. And one of the people around the fire say, hey, weren't you one of them? I recognize you. And he, of course, cusses and acts like he never knew him. Of course, Jesus is crucified. Three days later, he rises. In John 21, we see that this is going to be the third time Jesus appears to his disciples but in the setting, Peter and some other sailors, they don't know what to do. They'll just go back to what we did before and they go fishing. And they're out there fishing all night and they haven't caught anything. And the Bible says that Jesus is on the shore watching them. I believe the Bible teaches that he's been watching them all night because by the time they get to the shore, his fire's coals. So that fire's been burning for a while. But he calls out from the shore and he says, friends, haven't, have you caught any fish? Haven't you any fish? And in the, actually in the Greek, it's in the negative, And he kind of says it this way. You don't got any fish, do you? How's that working out? Of course, he says, those in the net on the right side of the boat, you'll catch some. They do. So many fish come into the net, they can't haul it in. John recognizes that's Jesus. That's the Lord. And Peter does a very interesting thing. He jumps into the water and tries swimming back to the shore to be the first one back to shore. The Bible actually says that they followed him 
with the boat and the fish. Peter wants to be the first one back to shore. And when he gets back to the shore, Jesus, I, I kind of have fun as I meditate on the word. I picture the disciples getting there. The Bible says they get to the shore and Jesus says, bring some of the fish you caught. But the Bible also said that he already had fish cooking on the coals. I love that. I love how God says, I'll use what I do through you, but I don't need you. I got fish. But I almost picture Jesus as they're sitting around that fire going, this fire reminds me of something. Hey, Peter, when's the last time I saw you around a fire? How'd that work out for you? Do you really love me more than these? Remember the guy said he loved me more than these? Peter says, I do love you. Jesus says, feed my sheep. He asked him again, as you know, and he says, feed my lambs. Then he asked him a third time. And this time the Bible says Peter was hurt that Jesus would ask him a third time. And Jesus, Peter's response is this. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. I picture Peter having the light click on. And Jesus smiles and says, yeah. And then in the verses right before we're about to read, Jesus says, remember that guy that said he would die for me? You will. Look at verse 18 of John 21. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, Peter, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Look closely. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Here he, was, he gave the, Peter the picture of crucifixion. It says he showed by what kind of death you're going to stretch out your hands. Peter knew full well. Peter knew when he was crucified, by the way, 25 years later, that Jesus had already told him how he was going to die. Peter now turns and sees the disciple whom Jesus loved following them and the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper. And he said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus didn't say to him that he was not to die. But if it was his will to remain until he comes, what is that to you? So as Peter realizes how he's going to die, it didn't sound too exciting. He quickly says, hey, I'll feel better about how I'm going to die if you tell me how Peter's going to die. Actually, some tradition, as you study history, say that there was a point where he was actually boiled in oil and it didn't kill him. John. But he did die. But he didn't die for his faith like all the other disciples that we know of that we, from history did. Does the Bible say that everybody's going to be killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ? No. But some will. Some will. Because I'm going somewhere here because what's happened is over the years, go back to Matthew chapter 10. What's happened is people have tried to take this section that I'm teaching you from tonight and make it all apply to the disciples right there and then and also to us. Because we've tried to read the church into everything. We're, we, we, we're so, we think we're the be all and end all. The church is something that God has done and is doing for a season. The Bible actually says back in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 21, that he's planned the church to make Israel jealous. Romans chapter 11, he says the same thing. The church is to make Israel jealous. It's not all about the church. The church has been in God's awesome plan for a while, but it's come to fruition in the days we're in. But it's not all about the church. 
And as the Bible says, and you hopefully understand, once the church age has come to a close, he's going to finish what he did with Israel and restore their fortunes and finish the promises he's given them. And the promises he's made to Israel are ours now, and that's wonderful. But stop trying to read the church into everything. As you faithfully study the scripture, you're going to have to learn to listen to the spirit and say, who's he talking to here? Is he talking to the church? Is he talking to the Jews? Is he talking to believers? Is he talking to unbelievers? I'm going to be laying this all out for you tonight to help you out with this, because as you're going to hear me say many times by the end of our study, welcome to prophecy, because I'm going to show you from Scripture tonight that this section that I read starts off with him talking to his disciples as he sends them out and say, I'm sending you out a sheep amongst wolves, but it becomes prophecy. It becomes prophecy. You remember how Jesus said to them at the end of his ministry, we read in John chapter 15, remember how I said to you, the servant's not above his master? In other words, remember what I said back there? It's being connected to down the road. The passage here goes and says that uh, there's going to be division in families. It's going to take a man against his father and daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against their mother-in-law. And the person's enemies will be those of his own household. Does that mean that if you follow Christ, everybody's family is going to be divided because of Jesus? No. Now, that does happen in some, some situations, but there's other situations where whole families come to faith. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to Acts chapter 16. Again, beware of those who take a passage of Scripture and try to build a doctrine around it. Use the whole of Scripture. Are there, there are people in this room that have division in their families because of Jesus? Some will believe and some don't. And there might be animosity amongst you because of it. And it's sad, but it's true and it's going to happen. But that doesn't mean it's going to happen to everybody. Look at Acts 16. Look at verses 11 through 15. It says, so setting, from Tro sail, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. And the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia. And a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we were supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Not only, not, we always talk about Lydia getting saved. The Bible actually says her whole household came to faith. Go to chapter 16, still look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prisons were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family." Then he brought them up to his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So here again, the whole household gets saved. Isn't that awesome? 
So what if the preacher says, I can show you two places where the whole household gets saved. If you follow Jesus, man, husband, father, your whole household will be saved. Doesn't say that, does it? Sounds real good. And I've heard people preach that. But that's not what the whole of Scripture teaches. Go to John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, look at verses 1 through 5. It says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He wouldn't go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews, the, fe the Jews' feast of the booze was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. You want to know who had a divided household and divided family? Jesus did. Now we know that his brother James became a believer later on after the crucifixion and after his resurrection. But at this point, his brothers were mocking him, making fun of him. You want to be a public figure? Go show yourself at the feast. Because they didn't believe in him. So that's why when you study scripture, you've got to understand who's this talking to? Who's, who's it not talking to? As we look more closely at what Jesus is saying here, we'll hopefully see that there's actually an eschatological focus here in much of what Jesus is saying. Now, I just started talking Spanish to some of you who don't speak Spanish. The word eschatological means a study. Eschatology is the study of last things and times. And what I'm going to show you in the time we have left tonight is that I believe without question, and I can show you from Scripture, that as Jesus is sending out his disciples and also speaking to us, and he says, I'm sending you out a sheep amongst wolves. He starts prophesying about what they're going to experience in their lifetime. But it all of a sudden jumps past their lifetime to the tribulation period. And a lot of what Jesus is talking about here actually is going to happen in the tribulation period. Not in their lifetime or yours or mine. Let me show you what I mean. He says he's going to send them out and they're going to be uh, put in, uh, flogged in the synagogues and persecuted, and killed, and sent before governors and kings. And isn't that what happened to Paul and many others? And that was true. But also, I want you to compare Matthew chapter 10, verse 21 and 20 through 23, with another section of Scripture in just a second in Matthew 24. Look at Matthew 10, verses 21 through 23. Jesus says, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and the children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, before we go any further, let me ask you a question. Has the Son of Man come back yet? No, very clearly. And we're going to explain scripturally why you can even know for a fact he hasn't returned yet. But at the same time, if he was talking to the disciples that he was speaking to at that time, they all died. And the Son of Man hasn't come back yet. So he couldn't have been talking to them. But I'll show you scripturally there's proof that he wasn't. He was actually prophesying. Again, what does he say? You're going to be hated by all nations, for my, by all for my name's sake. And the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jump with me over to Matthew chapter 24. And go with me to verses 1 through 27. 
Again, for too long, we've tried to read the church into Matthew 24. You reread Matthew 24 and just allow God to show you that he's speaking to the Jews and specifically about the tribulation period. Matthew 24 makes a ton of sense. In Matthew 24, verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, if you know the history of, of Israel, actually, Jesus is prophesying about A.D. 70 when the nation of Israel is going to be attacked by the Romans and scattered, like the Bible said, because of their rejection of the Messiah. And when they burned uh, Jerusalem, the gold that was all on the temple melted and got in the cracks of the stones. And they literally pulled all the stones apart to get to the gold. And not one stone was left on top of another. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, verse 3 says, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the, of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them and he said, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. So that, see that you're not alarmed for this must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these are but the beginning of, look closely, the birth pains. He doesn't say birth pains. He says the birth pains, and it's intentional. Because Jesus is speaking about a specific time period that the Old Testament had been prophesying about for a while. That he's speaking about the tribulation period, which is going to be coming to the nation of Israel. Again, after the end of the church age, we're going to be taken and raptured away. And then he's going to finish what he started, that prophecy in Daniel 9, verses 20 through 27, how 77s are decreed for Israel in the city of Jerusalem. And then the prophecy was fulfilled, all of them, except one seven-year period when the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem and then he was cut off. And then the Bible talks about how there's still one last seven-year period coming when this Antichrist is going to come and he's going to confirm a covenant with the many. And then at the midway point of that, he's going to break the covenant three and a half years later and declare himself to be God, the prophecy says. And as you know from our study of Revelation, you know that the, the Antichrist is going to come and then the Jews that believe are going to run for their lives and go out into the wilderness where they're going to be protected for three and a half years. But keep reading because I'm going to break some of this down in just a second. Keep reading with me. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Does that sound familiar? And then what we just read in chapter 10. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. There it is again. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through, throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. By the way, for years we've heard the preacher say, as soon as we get the gospel to the whole world, then the end can come. Folks, let your Bible build your theology. Let me first of all ask you a question, and then I'll show you from Scripture why the answer is the way the answer is. If we believe that there are people that have never heard the gospel yet, and we need to get to the gospel to them, then the end can come. What we're actually saying is, for the 6,000 years of history, there's been a group of people that have never had a chance to be saved. And all those people were destined to hell because they never heard the gospel. But as soon as we get the gospel to the whole world, now Jesus can come back. It's all about us. 
But doesn't Romans chapter 1 say that God has already revealed himself to everybody, so they're all without excuse through creation, first of all? And Romans chapter 2 goes on and says that even though they've never written, heard his written word, he's written his law in their hearts, and their hearts convict them. He shows them they're lawbreakers because they're going against their conscience. And it even says in Romans chapter 2, start around verse 16, you'll see it follow, and following. He says that God will judge all men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. In Romans chapter 3, he goes on and says that everyone is under the law, whether they've heard it or not heard it, because he's shown us we're lawbreakers, and that the, he, everyone's accountable for, before God, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world be held accountable to God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 23 clearly says, Paul says it, that this gospel, which has been preached in all creation. How about that? I thought we were waiting to get it to the whole world and then the end will come. Romans chapter 10, in that famous passage where it says, how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? And actually, we've read that as, how can they hear unless we get the word to them? And the preacher is saying, you got to go get the word, because if they don't hear, how can... And actually, if you read the context of Romans 10, with all the Old Testament passages that have been used all the way up to that point, Paul's saying, God would never expect someone to believe something they'd never heard. And he wouldn't hold them accountable for something they've never heard. And this three or four verses after that famous verse, he asked this question. Have they not heard? Of course they did. His word has gone out into all the earth. So let me ask you a question. If the scripture says that the gospel has already been preached in all creation in some shape, fashion or form, either through man or through God's spirit or through creation or through his law in our hearts. And the Bible says it's already been preached in all creation and his word's gone out into all the earth. Let me ask you a question. Um, are we waiting until it finally makes it to the whole world so the end will come? No. So what is he talking about here? Again, make a note. Too much to cover. Don't want you to take, you take time away from this. But make a note and write down Revelation chapter 14 and look at verses 6 and 7. Because you're going to see Matthew 24 is Jesus describing the tribulation period. And in Revelation 14, as it describes the end of the tribulation period in Revelation 14, verses six and seven, that Bible says at the very end of the tribulation period, there's going to be an angel hovering in midair who preaches the gospel to the whole world all at once. And then what happens? And Jesus comes back and the end comes. Jesus is referring to the angel that's going to do it. It's not up to us to get the word to the whole world and then the end will come. It's not up to us. For years, we've looked at Acts chapter 1 where Jesus says you're going to receive power and you're going to be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you're going to receive power. And you're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And we thought it started here and eventually it's going to make it to the whole world. But we never read Acts chapter 2 verse 5 where it says, And they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under, earth, under heaven. God had already brought them all there in Jerusalem to hear the preaching of Peter. Did he use the disciples to go out? Yes. But he'd also brought everybody from every nation under heaven into Jerusalem when Peter was preaching. They all, someone from every nation already heard. By the way, you notice how Paul was sent to Macedonia, we saw in Acts 16, and they were looking for people with, at their place of prayer, people who were seeking God, and found Lydia, who was a worshiper of God. But she hadn't heard Paul's preaching yet. Oh, but God's already at work. Folks, let me just tell you, I'm not saying we shouldn't send missionaries out. I'm saying we should. We should go out, keep going out because people are being born every day. People are more people that need to hear need to be or need to hear. Go out. But don't think it's up to us. And by the way, as you go back, remember what Jesus said here? This is just the beginning of the birth pains. What's going to be the sign of your coming to the end of the age? If you've been a part of our revelation study, you'll know that 
We get to Revelation chapter 5 and 6, and Jesus begins to open the seals. By the way, for years people have said that, well, the first half of the tribulation is the wrath of Satan, and the second half of the tribulation is the wrath of God. Who opens the first seal? Jesus does. It's all the wrath of God. It's all the judgment. And when he opens the first seal, who comes out? The rider on a white horse, pretending to be Jesus. And he has victory without even, a, a, he has a bow, but no arrows. And he has victory without warfare. And what did Jesus say? Um, there's going to be those who claim to be on the Christ. Then he opens the second seal. What, what's the next horse that comes out? Do anybody know? The red horse. What does the red horse represent according to Revelation? War. What did Jesus say? Um, there can be people claim to be the Christ. And then you're going to hear wars and rumors of wars. And then the next horse that comes out, remember that one? It's pestilence, pestilence, and famine. Didn't Jesus just say here in this section here in Matthew 24, there's going to be that, and then there's going to be death. And he said, but that's not the end. At the beginning of the tribulation, there's going to be an antichrist, and then there's going to be wars, and there's going to be rumors of wars, and there's going to be famine and earthquakes in all places and all this stuff. But that's not the end yet. That's just the beginning of the birth pains. If he says the birth pains, he must be referring to a specific set of birth pains. Go with me back to uh, Jeremiah chapter 30. I told you, <laughs> Jeremiah 30. Look at verses 4 through 7. In Jeremiah chapter 30, look at verses 4 and following. It says, These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. Ask now and see. Can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. You see how the time of Jacob's trouble or distress is described as birth pains? Go with me to Micah chapter 7. Yeah. Micah chapter 7. Look at verses 1 through 7. A prophecy of this coming judgment. It says, woe is me. I want you to see this. I want you to see it for yourself. Micah 7, verses 1 through 7. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat. No first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. The, their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. 
For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Matthew 10. For years, we've read Jesus' words just talking about how he's just trying to come up, with, come up with ways to describe how bad it's going to be. No, he was quoting the word. Folks, you're going to keep seeing this all through Matthew. Hopefully you hear this from me until the day I die. I don't think Jesus said much that wasn't a quote from the Old Testament. He's pointing them back to the scriptures that have been there all along. The reason why the church is in the mess that we're in is because we keep trying to read ourselves into it and make it about us when all along it's been about God and his plan and his agenda and what he's doing in Israel. And we've been grafted in and don't think you're greater than them. Go to Romans chapter 11. Look at verse 25 and following. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins now, as regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. Talking about the Israelites. But as regards election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Did you hear what Paul said? When the time of the Gentiles comes to an end, when this age of the church age comes to an end, remember he's using us to make Israel jealous. He's given us now the promises that he made them that one day he was going to erase their sin, wash them clean, put his spirit within them and move them to follow his decrees. That's all ours now by faith in Jesus Christ. Yet once we're gone, He's going to finish what he started with Israel and they're going to go through this period called the time of Jacob's trouble or the birth pains. And he's already been laying out what it's going to look like. Listen closely. And the Jews who stand firm to the end through that period will be the ones who are saved. Does that mean every Jew will be saved when it says all Israel will be saved? No, because we know the scripture says very clearly that that Judas was a Jew. And Jesus himself said he went where he belonged. He was a child of Satan from the beginning. Peter even said he went where he belonged. Let me tell you, the Bible doesn't say that every Jew is going to be going to heaven because they're a Jew. But all Israel that survives the tribulation period. Zechariah actually talks about that. How the nations come against Israel. And when the Antichrist goes against Israel, two thirds of the Jews at that time period are all going to be killed. But there's going to be a group who believe Jesus. And when the Antichrist steps into the wing of the temple, they run out into the wilderness and they're going to be protected for three and a half years. And they're going to look on him whom they pierced. And he's going to come back to where they are there in Boaz, uh, sorry, in Moab, in Basra. And he's going to atone for their sins and wash them. They're going to be saved and he's going to start his march to Jerusalem through the battle of Armageddon and defeating his enemies and ascend the Mount of Olives and the millennial kingdom will begin. Back in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus 
as we see now, is talking to his disciples about what they're going to experience. I'm sending you out as sheep amongst wolves. He starts talking about they're going to go in the synagogues and then they're going to be rejected and handed over to kings. We'll come back to that as we close. And then you're going to be hated by all nations because of me. But he who endures to the end will be saved. And mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, he starts quoting Old Testament prophecies about the, the tribulation period. That's why so many people have gotten so messed up on this verse 23. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you'll not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. I've heard preachers say that we must be in the return of Jesus now. It must be the church age because, I mean, it had to have happened in their lifetime. These guys, no, it didn't happen in their lifetime. That was a prophecy about the end. So as we can see, some of this truth is for all of us. But some of it's only for some. And some of it's only for Israel during the time of the tribulation. Welcome to prophecy. See, what's tricky about prophecy, and I'm going to lay this out for you in a way tonight that will be so clear. Hopefully, every, I, I believe without question, everybody will get it. The tricky thing about prophecy is some verses are talking about one time period. Other verses are talking about the very, another total time period. That's why the Bible says we have to rightly divide the word of God, if you will. We need to take the time to study it and allow the spirit of God to help us understand. This is talking about then. This is talking about then. Let me give you a couple examples. In Isaiah 65, right around verse 17, the Bible says, Behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered nor come to mind. He's talking about the new heaven and the new earth, the eternal state. The very next verse says, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and it starts describing the, tribulation, sorry, the millennial kingdom. And it talks about how if someone dies in the millennial kingdom, they'll only be, at 100, they'll be considered an infant. And wait a minute, people are going to die in the new heaven and the new earth? Oh, you tried to read it all together, putting it all together. Verse 17 was talking about one time period. Verses 18 and following are talking about some time totally different. Well, Jim, how do we know? That's where the Spirit comes in. And that's where studying the Scripture and knowing the whole of Scripture. And then with the whole of Scripture, the Spirit will help you grasp it. That's why the disciples who knew the Scriptures every now and then would go, now I know what he meant. They remembered that he said, zeal for my house has consumed me when he was cleaning the temple out. You see what I'm saying? You'll understand as you put it in your heart and then God will help you to see this is then. This is ah, I understand that now. That's making sense. But I'm going to go ahead. So when you attend your prophetic conference once a year, mm -hmm. right, for a different point of view. So if the spirit is clear to people who are studying the word. Mm hmm. All right, that's a great question. For those who didn't hear the question, he said, hey, I go to a prophecy conference every year, but the prophecy conference I go to is the pre-trib study group, research group. It was started by Liberty uh, University years ago, and Dr. Tim LaHaye and, uh, and some other, Thomas Ice and others. And it's for the purpose of studying the pre-tribulational rapture of the church, millennial kingdom view of the scriptures, because most people that believe what I believe the scripture teaches are considered ignorant. All the intellectuals think they have it all figured out, but they're leaving off whole sections of scripture. So they put together a research study group to intensely study it, not because they think, well, you're just an escapist. You just believe in that rapture stuff so you can get out of it. But we've actually come to realize and show through study that this is the doctrine that fits the whole of scripture. If I wanted to, to be a jerk, 
I could take 10 minutes tonight and convince you that there is no millennial kingdom. I could take scripture and I could show you how not all who are of Israel are Israel, but all who are of faith. And I could take some scriptures and twist them around and have you think that there's no millennial kingdom. The problem is I'd be leaving off three quarters of the Bible. Just because we study doesn't mean we listen to the spirit. Do you understand what I'm saying? So there's going to be differences of opinion. And actually, I've grown in my understanding of it over the years. And I'm learning more and more and more. I believe without question, and I'm willing to stand before God and say, because I will be judged one day by him for everything that I've said he said, that the view that uses the whole of Scripture, the only view that uses the whole of Scripture is the view that the church age comes to an end, we're raptured, the millennial the tribulation period, and then the millennial kingdom, and then at the end of that, Satan's released, and then the, the eternal state of the new heaven and the new earth. But just like you have over the years have the Spirit studied, are there things now you believe you didn't understand before, but now you believe differently? In the same way, I believe these brothers in mind who don't see it the way I see it, I believe they're saved. I just don't believe that they've gotten to that point. So there's going to be that, as I'm getting to more understanding myself. And that's the Spirit's job to get us there. You understand? It's a good question. But I'm going to use an illustration that I believe everybody in this room can grasp. They will help you understand how prophecy works. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61, look at verses 1 and 2. I want you to see this. You really need to have this in front of you to grasp this, all right? So don't just listen. You have to have it in front of you. Really, you need to see it for yourself. And Isaiah 61, listen to verses 1 and 2. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Keep your hand here. Flip with me over to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 16. In Luke chapter 4, verse 16, again, I'll wait for you because I want you to see it for yourself. In Luke chapter 4, verse 16, it says, And he, this is Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So he actually intentionally found this section that you just read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Did anybody know what Jesus did with verse 2? Did anybody see what he did? He said, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But we see in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, and especially in verse 2, that the sentence isn't over. It says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. There's no question the sentence is still going. But Jesus stops in the middle of the sentence. 
He says, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, rolls up the scroll, sits down and says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. How come he didn't read the rest? Oh, wait a minute. Did, did I just hear you say something crazy? Would you not all agree that the reason why he stopped there is because the first half of the verse is talking about his first coming? And the second half of the verse is talking about his second coming? Would you not agree that that is what it says? Did you hear what you just said? You just said that one half of a verse is talking about one time period and another half of the same verse is talking about something thousands of years later. You should. You should say it because it's right. Here's what, here's what I want you to see. Do you see it? It's very, very clear to all of us. Jesus said the first time he came, he didn't come to judge. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to be the suffering servant. He came to die for the sins of the world. When he comes back, he's going to be the day of vengeance. It's going to be the day of judgment. So the reason he stopped reading is because the first part of that verse is talking about one time period. The second part of that verse is talking about a totally different time period. Boy, that gets a little tricky now, doesn't it, when you study prophecy? Welcome to prophecy. It's to the glory of God to conceal a matter and the glory of kings to seek it out. Very good. You just talked about Proverbs 25, verse 2, I think it is. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to search out a matter. Folks, listen to me. The fun part of prophecy is if you're willing to take the time and pray and study and let the whole of Scripture show you we can put this together. When I teach the book of Revelation, I actually do a series when I go around the country. I go to some churches and I teach the whole book of Revelation. I leave off chapters 2 and 3 because that's dealing with the church age and I think we're really close to the end of it. I just deal with chapter 1 to lay the foundation and I start in chapter 4 and I go from chapter 4 to 22 and I teach the whole book of Revelation in six one-hour messages. But I also put it in chronological order. Instead of saying chapter 4, then chapter 5, then chapter 6, I, I jump around and show you this is talking about this time period. This is, this is going to happen next, and I jump around and put it together in chronological order. But I spend most of the time showing everybody that over three-quarters of the book of Revelation had already been written in the Old Testament. All Revelation does is take the Old Testament and put it together. And so I don't say, well, I think this is going to happen, or I think that. I only take Scripture. And when I'm done... Uh, six hours of teaching it, however the church wants me to do it over a week or over a weekend or whatever, people walk up and say, that's the first time I ever understood the book of Revelation. And I always ask this question, is it the first time that you put it in chronological order and took it literally? And they're like, yeah. And I go, well, there you go. Because what's happened is, because we've started making it all about the church and tried to read the church into the last days and all this stuff, when we read stuff about Israel, well, maybe it's not Israel. Maybe that means the church. Folks, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, didn't it say in Zechariah 9, 9 that he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey? But nowadays, the way we interpret the scripture and the prophecies, we'll say, well, what does the donkey represent? It's a donkey! Let me tell you, I could show you, we're not going to take the time now, when it talks in Revelation about Babylon being destroyed, it's literally Babylon. It's the city of Babylon being rebuilt right now. But Jim, Babylon's not even on a port city, and it talks about the merchants watching the burning. Go back and read Revelation. It says all of the ships on the entire oceans all watch the burning. They don't have to be right on shore to watch the burning. They all watch it. Folks, let me just tell you, when you start to take the Bible literally and under, Now, is there symbolic language? Yes, but I found that every single time that he uses symbolic language, he tells you what it symbolizes. 
these stars are the churches, these lampstands, sorry, the lampstands are the churches, the stars are the messages to the messengers to the churches. And if he uses symbolic language and he doesn't explain it, it's been explained somewhere else. In John chapter 7, he says, When anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and out of him will flow rivers of living water. By this he meant the Holy Spirit, which those who believed in him are later to receive. Again, explains the, sim the symbolism. Yes, there's symbolism in the rock in the wilderness, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says they all drank from the same spiritual rock in the wilderness, which is Christ. The scripture explains it. If it's symbolic, the scripture will tell you it's symbolic. If it doesn't say it's symbolic, take it literally, and you will all of a sudden start to see this starts to make sense. As you study scripture, you remember back when we started this study, I told you that if you try to read Matthew chronologically, it'll mess you up because Matthew compiles tidbits from Jesus' ministry and puts them all together in sections. As Jesus began to talk to his disciples and he sent them out, he started also moving into prophecy. And you're going to have to learn how to go back and reread it and say, is he talking about that time period? Is he talking about another? And I promise you, the more you study the scriptures, the more the Spirit of God will all of a sudden bring to your mind Micah chapter 7 or Jeremiah chapter 30, and you'll all of a sudden start to see how it comes together. We'll close tonight. Go back to Matthew chapter, 20, uh, chapter 10. Look at verse um, 17 and 18. You remember last week how Jesus said, don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans, go only to the lost sheep of Israel, remember that? Look at Matthew chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. He said, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my namesake, for my, my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Isn't that interesting? He said, oh, by the way, don't think that I don't care about the Gentiles. I have a purpose and a plan, and I'm working out all according to my, my plan. And as I use you to go to the Jews, the Jews are going to respond in such a way that the Gentiles are going to hear too. And eventually, I'm going to put a, hold, a hardening of their heart on them, partial hardening, and I'm going to send you just to the Gentiles. But right now, I'm sending you to the Jews. But don't think that the Gentiles are excluded. I'm going to use you while you're going to the Jews to have the Gentiles here. Folks, let me just say something to you. You may think you've been sent by God to go witness to somebody at a McDonald's or a Burger King or whatever. You may not realize the person you're talking to might not be the person God had you go there to talk to, but it might be someone who's listening. I've had happen so many times over the years. It just happened last Thursday. Sitting in a McDonald's, meeting with a pastor. And this lady walks up afterwards and she says, are you Jim Johnson? And I'm like, yeah, how do you know? She goes, I've never met you, but I heard your voice. And I've listened to you on the radio. I go, you were listening. She goes, I'm sorry. I'm like, no, no, no. Don't be upset about that. I'm glad. I'm loud. I talk about the Lord. I love his word. You never know who God's going to use you in. Just go out into his harvest field and have fun. I love you. We'll see you in over a month. Have a good time.